Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Oh, so you're sneaking into my house again, huh? That's fine. Just don't touch the remote. Actually, today I've got a compilation of stories to share with you, of scary tales from police or about police, which I've told in the past. However, most of these stories are from my other show, Unexplained Encounters. Yep, if you didn't know, I also host a show dedicated to stories of encounters with the terrifying and unexplained. Enjoy, I'll be back soon with new and creepy work stories, now go on and let me catch up on my shows. Oh, and if you want to check out my other show, just go to EerieCast.com. 1. It Saved My Uncle's Life by Era M. This story began over a decade ago. My uncle had been a police officer for nearly 30 years. In that time, he will tell you, he has seen just about everything there is to see. Drug busts, domestic disturbances, car accidents. He even delivered a set of twins once in the parking lot of a Denny's. Crazy, right? He has hundreds of stories that would rattle even the most hardened horror fanatics, but the one I'm about to share with you is perhaps the strangest in his repertoire. I feel I must warn you, the story contains graphic content and is not for the faint of heart. In the year 2002, my uncle worked as a state patrol officer in southern Georgia. He frequently traveled those desolate two-lane highways between larger towns where the only signs of civilization were the occasional rest stops, truck weigh-in stations, and run-down 7-Elevens that set off of every exit. During the time, most of his calls revolved around vacationers traveling from up north to Florida who'd run into car trouble. A flat tire or overheated radiator, stuff of that nature, most of his calls, as he described them, were uneventful. In August of 2002, all of that would change. It was just after a summer downpour, a little before sunset, when my uncle got the call that an 18-wheeler had hydroplaned and jackknifed into the pylon of an overpass. The accident had blocked traffic, and it was quickly backing up. My uncle was in the area and responded to the call. When he got there, he found the 18-wheeler in flames. The driver was still in the cabin, pinned behind the wheel and trapped by his seatbelt. He was struggling frantically because the flames were crawling up over the crumpled hood and into the cabin with him. Now, the police at the time had protocols that told them not to endanger themselves by rushing toward a flaming vehicle, but my uncle saw the man struggling and did it anyway. Minutes ticked by, and together my uncle and the man struggled with the seatbelt and the steering wheel, but neither would budge. Fire consumed the cabin, and it forced my uncle out of the cab. The man, still trapped, began to scream, pleading with my uncle to at least shoot him, so that he didn't have to burn to death. 
Legally, my uncle's hands were tied. Shooting the man meant essentially committing murder. But the man was screaming for mercy, begging my uncle not to let his wife have to view a charred corpse, as then she would know that he suffered a horrible, painful death. He didn't want the onlookers, the people who had gotten out of their vehicles to stare horrified at what was going on, to witness a man screaming and burning alive. My uncle, of course, couldn't do it. He couldn't stand by and let the truckers suffer. Protocols be damned. He acted on instinct and pulled his gun from its holster. The trucker, whose pants and shirt were already going up in flames, saw this and began to cry, shouting his thanks and asking my uncle to hurry, because he had never felt pain so bad. My uncle did as he requested. Now I could tell you all about the legal drama that went down after that, but that isn't the point of the story. Suffice to say, the trucker's wife refused to press charges and held my uncle as an angel of mercy. I tell you that story to tell you this one. Ever since that day, my uncle said he never felt like he was totally alone. In his home, on the job, wherever he went, he felt like there was someone with him. For years, he never gave a name to it and often brushed it off as paranoia, stress, or lack of sleep. He's not the sort of man who believes in spirits or anything like it, so thoughts of the paranormal never occurred to him. That is until four years ago in November 2012. My uncle had retired from his job and taken up a hobby of running rental cars from dealerships to dealerships all across the southern U.S. He was usually on a deadline, and these runs sometimes took place over long hours with little stops for rest in between. So on the longer trips, he would ride with a partner. They could trade off when one got tired. But on this particular occasion, his usual partner was ill, and he couldn't make it. So my uncle had to do the job alone. He could have declined the job, but due to a nasty divorce, he needed the money. The trip would take him from Miami, Florida to Louisville, Kentucky, upwards of 16 hours of drive time, not counting pit stops. It was going to be a rough ride, but my uncle had had worse in his day and figured he could do it without a problem. The first 14 hours of travel went without incident, but the drive wore on my uncle harder than he anticipated. Before he knew it, he was struggling to stay cognizant of what was going on around him. But the man was stubborn, and with only two hours left to go, he was determined to stick it out and get the car to its destination. My uncle still struggles to comprehend what happened next. He was sandwiched between two 18-wheeler trucks, one in front and one behind. The car he was driving was a little gray Ford Taurus, a car that is easily overlooked by big rigs. My uncle saw that the truck in front of him had slammed on the brakes. He intended to do the same, but he says before he could move his foot from the gas pedal, that strange feeling of not being alone washed over him. It was stronger than ever before. He didn't know what caused him to do it, but he glanced over into the passenger seat next to him, fully expecting to see that it was empty, as it had been since the beginning of the journey. But it wasn't. There, seated next to him, was a face he would never forget. It was the trucker he had killed years ago, 
his hands and face badly disfigured and charred by fire. My uncle was dumbstruck. He didn't know how it was possible and figured he was hallucinating because he was so exhausted. But the man shouted at him and then reached for the steering wheel, jerking it violently to the right, out of my uncle's hands. The car swerved just in time to miss the 18-wheeler in front of him, just in time to get out of the way as the rig behind him crashed full speed into the now-stopped semi. My uncle ended up screeching to a halt halfway up the off-ramp. Being the ex-cop he was, he felt compelled to get out of his car and check on the truckers. The other trucker was white as a sheet when he climbed down out of his cabin. He was unhurt, thankfully, but insisted that he hadn't even known my uncle was in front of him. He asked my uncle again and again how he managed to get out of the way in time, but my uncle had no answer, at least no answer that would make any sense. Since that day, my uncle says he never felt that feeling again, and though he struggles to believe anything paranormal, he knows what he saw, he knows what happened, he knows he wasn't alone in the car that day. That was the day the ghost of a man my uncle killed in an act of mercy came back to repay the debt. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters, murder, mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the roaring 20s. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play with my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Two, I have no idea what I saw by snowballs. I work as a police officer. I have been for a while now. I live in Northern Europe. One evening, my partner and I were patrolling a dark little road. It was pretty quiet that night. Maybe one or two vehicles would pass by every 10 minutes or so. We were driving around and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. We were talking enjoying some still steaming coffee we had picked up, when suddenly, something crossed over the middle of the road in front of our vehicle. Something tall, furry, with a head that resembled a wolf. What really bewildered me beyond that was the fact that it didn't cross on four legs. I stopped the car, and my partner asked, Did you see that? Yes, I did, I replied. Was... Was that a person? 
It looked like it had something in its hands. I shook my head. I didn't really know what to say. Should we go check it out? She continued. Being curious and stuck on a shift that was extremely slow, we decided to call it in. We walked toward the woods with our flashlights on and hands on our holsters, ready to draw our weapons at any time. We got pretty deep in. By then, we saw blue flashing lights, signaling that the other patrol car had arrived. We were a few hundred meters from the road when we found something. Honestly, I thought it was a tree at first, but then it turned to look at us. I saw its glowing yellow eyes, or maybe it was just reflecting our flashlights, and there was blood on its mouth. It did have something in its arm, a person. It let out a horrifying scream, something that reminded me of a car spinning out of control. We were horrified, confused. We aimed at the creature, who was now beginning to walk away, as if it didn't care about our presence. And before we could shoot, someone else did. One of the backup units who found our patrol car and had followed us out into the woods. It screeched again, dropping the person in its arm and running into the woods. We were dumbfounded and petrified. Soon, I was able to turn around and look back at the officer who had fired. He was shaking. He wasn't blinking. He was horrified too, but more than we had been. The guy who had been dropped was on the ground and unconscious, but other than that, he appeared to be fine. We took him back to a patrol car and called an ambulance. The rest of us could not take our eyes off of the surrounding forest, even though nothing came of it after that. When the guy came to in the hospital, he immediately began to cry, asking where his daughter was. The thing is, I know what he's talking about. A missing person case in which the little girl had never been found. I don't know what we were dealing with that night, and I don't know what happened to the man's poor family, but I will be staying away from those woods. Three, Ohio River Encounter by Jago. This story isn't my own, but it was told to my class in middle school by a local police officer. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, which is bordered by the Ohio River to the north. Our city is definitely not known for giant river monsters or anything like that, but the Ohio River is two things, deep and murky. The deepest part of the river is located in this area and can be over 100 feet deep. The officer that came to our school and spoke was part of one of those don't-do-drugs campaigns, but one of the officers told us he was a former member of the Underwater Search and Recovery Unit. This obviously piqued my interest, as well as many of the other classmates. The officer began to tell us plenty of stories, such as how they had recovered a car, and when they opened the door, snakes poured out. Then he told a story of how he recovered multiple bodies, after a couple of stories, the teacher asked a question I'm sure many of us were thinking. If you've experienced a snake nest and dead bodies, 
then what could have possibly made you quit diving? The officer got nervous and chuckled, and then proceeded to tell us this story. He was on a team that was charged with recovering a car and driver that had sunk into the Ohio River. They got on the boat and headed out to the general area they calculated the river current would carry the vehicle and quickly began their dive. Nothing special about the dive so far. As they got to the bottom and began searching for the wreckage, the officer began looking around. But like I said earlier, the river is very murky and so visibility was low. Using his hand to feel around, he made his way through the river when he started to feel something smooth and round, something he described as larger than a dinner plate. This is when what was in front of him swam off. The officer described the entirety of the fish as the size of an SUV, and he assumed that what he had touched was actually the creature's eye. Judging by the size, he guessed the fish was large enough to swallow him whole. The officer returned to the boat as fast as possible and told those above him that he would never dive in the Ohio River again. Soon after, he put in for a transfer and got right out of the diving unit. Pretty crazy that river monsters aren't only found in some rainforests. They can be very close to home. Four, Arrest from Hell by DJ93. I am a police officer in Louisiana State, so much of the information given about identities and locations may be changed. I've worked on the force for six and a half years now. It's around the Lafayette area in Louisiana. My story takes place two years ago in mid-October. I got a report of a naked man running down the street from house to house banging on each door, waiting for someone to open. Now at this time, I was training a young deputy that just got out of the academy. His name was Jared. When we got out of the vehicle, we called into dispatch and let them know that we were on the scene. Being that Jared just got out of the academy and was training with me, I let him take the lead. While we were approaching the man, he was screaming words we didn't understand, and to this day, we still don't think it was any actual language. Seeing this behavior before, we're already under the impression that he's on some hardcore drugs, maybe PCP or something, so we take our precautions. Once we reach the man, Jared tries speaking with him, but he simply shouts at Jared and says no, and then whispers, I want to speak with him, and he pointed at me. I've been on the force for a couple of years now, so this might have been some guy I'd picked up before. Maybe he knew me and I just didn't remember. I agreed to his request and I talked to him. Little did I know this moment right here is where the man would change my life forever. I start off by asking him what he's doing outside running around naked like that. He replies with, The devil told me to. I have to find the good blood. Now, believe it or not, I've heard that story before. Not exactly the way he said it, but I've heard of people messed up on drugs wanting to speak to the devil. But there was something in his face that honestly looked like he believed it, beyond the drug-fueled rampage. So I asked him, 
What have you been taking tonight? Maybe some of that new legal that's been going around? Tried to have a little bit of fun? You overdid it, didn't you? He stops, looks up at me, and then looks down, and says, Yours looks good. Now the guy is around 360 pounds and around the age of 35. I'm beginning to finger my gun in the holster. We already had plenty to arrest him. Before things got any more out of hand, I made the call to put him in handcuffs. He didn't put up a fight, and he came with us easily, but that didn't keep him from speaking more gibberish in the back seat to the station. When we arrived at the station, the booking deputies met us at the door. They took him in to do a cavity search. Then they did the fingerprinting process. He asked when he was going to get his phone call, and the deputy said as soon as we're done. The guy goes quiet until he gets his phone call. By this point, we learn his name is Clay, and this is where I start to get weirded out. Jared was asking him what phone number he would like to call. He gave him the number. On our caller ID, it showed up as private, but that's nothing new to us, though. As soon as someone answered the phone, my partner handed him the phone on the other side of the booth. He began by telling the person on the other side that he was locked up, and he started speaking in that weird language again. It was weird, but while he was talking to the other person on the phone, he kept looking at me and smiling. He drew silent for a moment, figuring that the person was just talking to him, and he was listening. Suddenly, he falls on his back and begins seizing up. Then I kid you not, before the officers could approach him, he begins to do this psychotic spider walk thing. The guy was completely crazy. He jumps up from off the floor and puts his hand against the glass right by my face, says something, and then knocks himself out by hitting his head on the glass. Two days pass and my partner and I are getting back to work. Jared asks me, you remember that crazy naked dude, Clay, I think? He bought it out yesterday morning. Jokingly, I said to him, we'll probably have to pick him up again soon. Repeat offenders are all too common. The rest of the night was normal, but when I got home after my shift, that's when the crazy begins. I got off around 6 a.m. I work nights, so I get home at about 6.15 every day, and today when I pulled up, I noticed something weird in front of my doorstep. I figured maybe my wife might have put something in front of the door, like a mat or something. When I got closer, I noticed it wasn't a mat. Instead, it was six dead birds formed in the shape of a triangle. And inside the triangle, I kid you not, was a chalice. I knew in my mind this had to be placed here by someone. But why? By who? Through the course of the next couple of days, things got weird. There was knocking on my door randomly. I told my wife to start carrying a gun just in case. There were plenty more dead birds as well. Someone began opening our mail and putting it at the doorstep. Then we found markings on our vehicles as well. But what came later will haunt my life for the rest of my days. It was November 13th, 5.30 p.m. My wife and I are going to visit my mom that lives in New Iberia. It's about a 35-minute drive. While visiting with my mom at around 7.48 p.m., I get a phone call from ADT, our security company. 
They're asking me if I entered my home, and if so, I need to give him the password. I said, no, we're not currently in the town. They said okay, and that they'll be calling the police. Knowing that I'm a police officer, they advised me that the left bathroom window was broken into, if it truly wasn't me at home. Knowing that, I called the captain on shift that night to find out who was going to basically be my backup for when I reach home. He replied Jared would be there. He needed the overtime anyway. I hang up the phone with the captain and call Jared on his private cell. He picks up, and I tell him, sounds like some screw had broke into my house. He said, yeah, but don't worry. When I get there, he's in for some trouble. How long are you going to be? I told him I was on my way and that I'd meet him there. The rest of the story felt surreal to me, and I'm still shaken up by it. When I get to my house, there's more than one police cruiser in the driveway. A couple of officers meet me outside before I approach the door. I ask, hey, uh, where's Jared? What's going on? Who broke into my house? They reply that they're still looking for the person who did this, but they don't let me approach my own home. They even said to me, if you've got a cigarette man, you might want to light it. Not knowing what they're talking about, I'm thinking this guy stole all my things or broke them, but none of that compares to what came out of their mouths next. A female officer put her hand on my shoulder and told me, Jared's gone. I don't remember my exact expression. I remember feeling confused and not knowing what I just heard. I asked her, what the heck did you just say? She says, Jared, he was shot in the back multiple times, and there was a note. I demanded immediately to see this note. I wanted to see Jared too, but forensics wouldn't let me. Same deal with the note. But Christy had read it before they arrived, so she told me what it said. It read, Not the blood I needed. Right then I knew who it was who did this. My face turned pale, my hands got sweaty, and my eyes began to leak. That psycho druggie had broken to my home and killed my partner. I couldn't stop wishing that I was the one who came home, not Jared. Five, Small Town Skinwalker by Dillman. A few months back, I was on a routine third shift. I work as a police officer in a very small town in Ohio. It is currently the middle of fall I'm not gonna say where, people can find it pretty easily. Anyway, I was on a night patrol, driving in my patrol car. On most nights, we are required to get out of our cruisers to check areas that our cruisers don't fit. There is a super long, almost two mile bike path we're supposed to walk down. One night, as usual, I got out and walked the path. Usually we do this to make sure no one is hurt or overdosed, my flashlight was dimmed during the walk. I had forgotten to charge it that day. About a mile into the walk, I start to feel very strange. Not a typical gut feeling. A feeling that you know something is wrong or something is about to go wrong. 
Around that time, I began to hear leaves crunching. I turned in every direction, shining the fading light. My light is so dim, though, that it's hard to make out much of anything. I continue trying to get this walk over, and I start to speed up, but in doing so, I must have triggered something's instinct, because as I speed up, the breaking leaves got quicker, louder, and closer. I get to the point where I know something is definitely there, so I just stop and listen for about five minutes. I'm hoping to catch some kids playing a prank, or a fellow officer trying to get a laugh out of me, but nothing. The sound stopped when I stopped. I shone my light all around me. I slowly turned my light from tree to tree. Then I noticed something odd. I passed by it the first time. I shone my light back in that direction that I noticed from earlier, and I did see something. Contrasting colors to the surroundings, there was something in that tree. I could see it up there, reflecting the light in its eyes. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I've seen deer, wolves, and other animal eyes reflect the light like that, but nothing quite like this. I hesitated, almost drawing my firearm, but I stopped myself knowing that I could get myself in trouble if it really was just a kid. This thing. It took one step out from the tree it was hiding in, and I got the whole body view of it. The thing was covered in feathers, it was extremely tall and didn't appear to be completely human. But I did notice its hands were human-like, but the thing was covered in feathers. I didn't realize I was backing up. Thankfully, it never moved more than when it did earlier. I was frozen in fear, too scared to move after I stepped back a few times. But I snapped out of it. Suddenly, dispatch came on over the radio on my uniform snapping me out of my petrification. I started walking backwards again, very quickly now, not taking my eyes off of this thing. It felt like forever, but I finally got back out of those woods. My cruiser was in the clearing, and I bolted to it as fast as I could, not looking back. At least, not until I got in the cruiser. By then, I was shining every light I had in its direction. But there was nothing. Nothing but very odd, bird-like noises. I decided to ignore it altogether and get out of there. Sex. A Policeman's Awful Story. By Katie L. U. While on my way home from a recent hunting trip, I had quite a bit of time to talk with my buddy Benny who is like a dad to me. This man has truly lived an amazing life and gone through the good and the bad and the worst. This story, sadly, is about the worst. I asked him while we were driving home what was the worst thing he'd ever seen, or perhaps the scariest. He was silent for a moment, thinking back through all the years and started telling me a story from back when he was a police officer. He started off by saying how illegals near the border of Texas and Mexico would sleep on the train tracks because they believed that the rails of the tracks would prevent snakes from biting them. Well, one night, he got a call at the police station that two of these people had been run over due to sleeping on the tracks. When he arrived, he said it was the most disgusting thing he'd ever seen. 
heads split in two, limbs off and mangled from their bodies, splashes of red like a rustic painting, bits and pieces stuck to the railroad. Those poor men had been killed in their sleep. When a female officer showed up, Benny told her not to look under the blanket, but she said that she had seen a lot in their time and it wouldn't bother her. And as soon as she lifted it up, she quickly stumbled off and vomited from the sight. Benny himself didn't sleep at all that night, and it took him weeks to get back to normal. Despite this incident, it wasn't the first time he had seen something that bad. But that's life, and in Benny's life he's seen a lot, and he has many stories to share. 7. My Uncle Was a Police Officer by Big Boy 69. My uncle is an ex-marine and ex-police officer. When my uncle was still a police officer for Dublin, Ohio, this was one of his creepiest experiences. One night, my uncle Tim and his partner Dave were working the third shift, and as they were driving around the slums of Dublin, they got a call about a domestic disturbance about a half mile up the road. When they get to the house, all the lights are off. My uncle and Dave are a little hesitant at first, but it's their job and they got onto it anyways. Now with my uncle's ex-marine body type and current police officer, he was a big guy, about six foot one and 225 pounds, so he was bulky. When they get into the house, it reeks of rotten meat and marijuana, and there's bottles and trash all over the place. They assume it's a crack den. Dave hears a creak coming from upstairs and says he'll check it out. My uncle nods. Dave proceeds up the stairs and my uncle stays downstairs searching and flips on the light switch for the kitchen. When the light came on, he saw a body with a heroin needle sticking out of the arm. My uncle reports it, saying he's going to need some help with this. But then there's a gunshot from upstairs and a blood-curdling scream coming from Dave. My uncle runs upstairs to find a dead body on the floor and a bloody Dave. There's a woman in the back corner screaming at him. Backup arrives and takes the two bodies out, and the surviving lady was interviewed. Turned out to be their landlord, and the reason she was there sent chills down their spines. They had drugged, beat, and assaulted her, and they kept posting pictures of her on some deep website, and people would pay to come over and assault her as well. The reason my uncle was called there was because the neighbors down the street heard screaming and yelling and loud bangs, so they called the cops. My uncle was still a police officer for a few more years after that. He says he should have quit right after that night, but something about saving that girl was reward enough. 8. Deputy Charged by the Dogman by Tyler After spending eight years in the Marines, I landed a job at the local sheriff department as a deputy in my home state. The first few months flew by. I was living life like the time before I joined the Marines. I was enjoying it. One night I got a call about a missing person and decided to look into it. I drop by the house and this older woman walks out with an old double barrel shotgun next to her hip. 
She says with a rude southern style voice, with a voice that sounds like a heavy smoker. About time y'all showed up. My husband been gone for almost two days now. Sorry, ma'am, I got here as fast as I could, I replied, giving a smile and trying to be polite. She tells me her husband went out rabbit hunting the day before, and she was getting worried about him, and that it's not like him to be gone this long without contacting her. I proceeded to get her info and his info, then headed out to the location of this hunting area. On my way, I contacted Fish and Game and the station to see if they could send someone out to help me. It'd be best if we could find him before nightfall. They said okay and that they'd have someone out there with me soon. When I arrive, there is a deputy and a fishing game officer there waiting for me, next to the guy's truck. I get out and chat with the officers for a few minutes about what we're going to do. Then we head out. We follow what we believe to be the guy's tracks for about a half a mile. We come to an open field and then we came across a dead deer that clearly had been shot out of season. So we're looking for a poacher, I see, the game warden says. Well, he's gonna get himself arrested or fined after we find him. I nod and laugh, and look at the deer closer, noticing that its killing wound is on its neck, and it looks more like bite marks than a bullet. Coyotes, the other deputy says. Mm, maybe, the game warden replies. After leaving the deer, we walk back into the woods and just a little down a hill. I see something stick out laying up next to a tree. I take a closer look. Well, there's our guy, I smile, and make my way over to him. I see he's shaking and still has his gun in his hands, so I calmly call out, Sir, we're here to help you. He turns slowly, still shaking, then turns back around. I walk around the tree to look at him to see a horrible sight. The man's hunting dog looked like it had been half eaten. Did, did you do this? I asked. He says, no, no, sir. I ain't that desperate. Wolves, sir. Biggest wolves I've ever seen. We don't have wolves in Ohio, one of my partners say. The man nods his head quickly. I know we don't have wolves, sir. He stands up with the rest of his dog in his arms and completely forgets about his gun. Please get me out of here. When we make it back to the truck, we call the EMTs to pick up the guy. Me and my partners are talking about what may have happened to the dog. Then we hear this blood-curdling howl. We draw our guns as the howling sounded like it came from the nearby woods. We hear movement and then something bursts out of the bushes. Something starts charging towards us, a big shadow of a creature. There's snarling and anger in it. We fire, and less than a second later, there's a loud yelp as the thing turns around and runs back into the forest. We need to go after it, says the game warden. Did you see how big that was? There's no way I'm going after it, I tell him. We stay around for only as long as we have to. The ambulance takes the man, and we go back to the station, the deputy and I. You couldn't pay us enough to stay out there, let alone go hunting for something that monstrous. I don't know what it was, but I'm glad the man was alive, and we were able to help. Nine. 
A Police Officer's Paranormal Experience by James B. This story is from an older episode, but it was a good one that I'd like to share with you again for those who may not have heard it. There's background music in this one. I wasn't able to find it without the music, but still, it's a great story, so enjoy. I live in South Central Kentucky, and I had always wanted to become a police officer. After going through the application process and the training, I was fortunate enough to be hired. Right off the bat, the sheriff told me that I should start getting used to staying up all night because I was going to be starting in two weeks, starting the night shift, that is. My best friend and I decided to go out and drive around all night on the rural back roads to get some practice in before the big day. Not to mention, I really needed to learn the roads as best I could before I started working. It was the first week of November, and it was pretty cold out. The night sky was clear, and there was a bright full moon above us. We were traveling on a narrow back country road, out in the middle of nowhere, and it must have been close to three in the morning. I came up on a long straight stretch, and I noticed what looked to be a person right in the middle of the road in the distance. This was really strange because there were no houses anywhere close and it was extremely cold out, like I said, not to mention it was really late. My friend Eric asked what we should do in this situation. Do you think something is wrong with this person, he said. I looked at my cell phone and noticed that I had no signal way out here. Even still, we kept getting closer to this person and as we did, we noticed that it was a woman wearing a white dress. Immediately, I assumed that she was either drunk, high, or something had to be bad wrong with her. Maybe she was hurt. Maybe she had a mental condition. I didn't know. I told Eric that we could give her a ride and get her some help if she needed it, but we simply couldn't leave her out here alone. We approached, and when we got within approximately 100 feet of the girl, we noticed that she was walking like she was either crippled or just really drunk. I began to feel more worried as we approached her, and soon I began to expect the worst. But before we could approach any further, Eric screamed right in my ear. Holy shit, she doesn't have any fucking legs. I thought he was joking with me, which this definitely wasn't the time for that. But even if it sounded crazy, I looked over to the girl, and I could not believe what I saw. He wasn't lying. The girl didn't have legs. She wasn't walking strange, she was floating. I'd never believed in ghosts in my life. I thought that only crazy people actually believed in them. So we both sat there, silent and in shock. I stopped the car as we watched her walk away from us, or better yet, float away with her back towards us. We were both just freaking out in the car at this point. My headlights were on bright, and I had a powerful spotlight aimed on her. We realized that my lights were going through her body and shining on the forest ahead of her. She was translucent. I made the decision to slowly drive past her. I could never shake the thought that this was a bad idea altogether, but I continued to drive anyway. As we went beside her, she was only three feet from the side of the car. Eric had brought a gun, he now had it unholstered and laid in his lap at the ready as we passed by. Her dress was tattered and torn, 
and the dress and her legs both ended at her knees. She had her head down and we could not see her face because of her long black hair being in the way. Every second I looked at her, chills filled my body and I felt goosebumps envelop me. We continued to pass her and when we were about 25 feet in front of her, I told Eric to keep his eyes on the girl. As I pulled off the road to turn around, there was a sharp curve ahead and I took my eyes off of her to make sure no cars were coming, that we were okay to turn. But the moment I looked away, Eric was freaking out so badly. He had taken his eyes off of her for a second and when he looked back in her direction, the girl was gone. What? I said. I pulled back out onto the road and I now faced her direction, but she wasn't there anymore. She was somehow gone, as if she had vanished. The two of us got out of the car and began to look along the ditch line with my spotlight. Even if she had ran as fast as a freaking cheetah, there was no way she could have made it to the edge of the woods which were about 500 feet away. We drove up and down the road a few more times, but this girl was gone. She really had vanished. We decided it was time to call it a night. We headed home, processing what we had just seen. A little over two years ago, while I was working night shift, I went into the local gas station to get a cup of coffee. I noticed a few older men were sitting in the back of the station. They were looking at a book and talking about ghosts in the area. I walked over and I saw that they were looking at a book that had to do with the paranormal happenings in Kentucky. They were talking about the ghost from Red Hill Road. This really caught my attention because that was the road that I had my sighting on years ago. As the man holding the book and I began to talk, he told me that this woman had been murdered by her sister on her wedding day because her sister was jealous of her and she wanted to marry her sister's fiance. The girl was stabbed over 50 times with a large kitchen knife. Perhaps this explains why we saw the girl with the wedding dress and maybe why her dress was all torn and tattered. Even though I had a witness years ago, it felt good to know that other people had sighted her in the past 100 years. Eric and I were not the only ones. One of the men in the group at the store gave me his wife's phone number. He told me to call and talk to her about my sighting because she had also seen her back in the mid 70s. I did end up talking to her and she described the ghostly woman exactly as I saw her. Nowadays, I firmly believe in ghosts and I always will because I witnessed it myself with my own two eyes. I have told people this story from time to time and I'm always thinking that maybe, maybe other people don't believe because they hadn't seen something themselves. As for me, I'll be on my deathbed and I'll still swear on everything that I love that this was real and if there was any way possible for me to prove it, I would. Thank you for listening. And 10. My First Week as an Officer by Cody W. I remember my first week on the force all too well. I'm not talking about training. I'm talking about the week I was finally able to get in a patrol car. I had to drive around with a partner for a while, which was fine with me, as I was pretty nervous to be honest. 
I handed out mostly warnings that week, but each time I issued a ticket, I felt more nervous than usual. I mean, I've seen the YouTube videos of people going absolutely nutso on an officer, because how dare he reprimand you for breaking the law? Luckily, most people were calm. Most people knew and openly admitted that they had done wrong. It was a relief and made me think that I was going to enjoy this job. But then came that day. It was a Friday afternoon. People were getting off work and speeding to cash their checks at the banks before they closed, or speeding to get in line first before getting behind everyone else. This led to me tailing an old 82 Chevy pickup that had been going 60 down a 45. He was heading into town, and I had assumed the usual, another racer off to cash a paycheck. But by the time I caught up to him, he was taking a side road out of city limits, leading my partner and I down a dirt road. I turned on the lights as soon as we turned down the road, but the vehicle didn't slow down, not for at least another two minutes of driving. I figured the road was narrow, and they were trying to find somewhere safe to pull over. Eventually, they did. They pulled into an even more narrow path that looked more like a hiking trail. Then they stopped maybe 30 yards in. When we stopped, I noted just how closed off the area was, and I was ready to defend myself if need be. My partner stayed in the car, letting me know he'd be watching and would be on the guy in seconds if anything got fishy. I got out and began to approach the truck. When I made it within five yards of the driver window, I was startled. The driver's hand kind of fell out of the window and smacked against the side of the car. Maybe he was relaxing, or maybe he was just trying to show me he was angry and didn't have time for my speeding ticket. I made it to the window, then looked inside. The next thing I did was nearly fall over backwards and shout, What the? Because the guy was dead. Freshly dead. There was a gash in his throat and a knife in it. He must have done it seconds after we had stopped. Chills flooded my body, and I found myself groping my holster. My partner was already a few feet from me, gun aimed toward the truck. What's going on? He asked. It's... Uh, he's dead. Killed himself, I replied with a stutter. My partner reported it to dispatch, and I quickly scanned the truck bed. All I found back there was a trash bag. Upon touching it, it felt and sounded like there were gallons of water in it, but I was petrified. After seeing that mess in the front seat, I was afraid to see what might be in this bag, but my curiosity got the better of me. I untied it slowly, and it spilled open. Clear, odorless liquid poured over the truck bed. It was just water. I sighed in relief. Just a trash bag. Probably got rained on or in or something. Then I saw the hair. My partner had to handle the rest. I was tossing up my lunch in the bushes. The guy had killed his daughter and bagged up her body. Why there was water in the bag, I have no idea. He was on his way to bury her, and having been pulled over, he took his own life. We never figured out why he did it. It was a tragedy, and I got to be the one to stumble upon it. I'm still a police officer, and therapy has helped, but nothing brings you right back down to earth 
than stumbling upon something disgusting like that. Warning. The following story contains harsh depictions of violence against pets. Cynthia. From Officer Nobody. I'm a young police officer in a southern city. As a child, it was my dream to become one. I made tinfoil badges and carved sticks to look like pistols. I took reports with crayons and chased imaginary criminals. Twenty or so years later, I averaged three hours of sleep and have grueling anxiety attacks. Like my peers, I've seen terrible things. It's what we signed up for, so I don't expect sympathy. In 2018, I responded to a welfare check where I found a two-week-old decomposed body. The man had hanged himself with copper wire inside a closet. His skin was so rotted that it separated where the wire attached. It was an unwanted but gnarly anatomy lesson. It was mid-June, so the smell was unbearable. But hey, dead bodies were a dime a dozen. In 2019, I helped scrape a woman from the pavement following a crash. Her survived husband watched from a distance. But hey, I dealt with hysterical loved ones weekly. In 2020, I watched a homeless man burn alive inside a shed. He had locked the door from the inside and couldn't find the key. The window was too narrow to climb out of. His space heater had caught fire. But hey, the fire marshal took the report. I don't mean to sound callous or smug. I only want to depict reality. The truth is, as disgusting as those stories are, they are not the reason behind my insomnia. They are not the reason for my anxiety. Frankly, I hardly think about them. My trauma comes from 2021, where I responded to a call that haunts me every second. It was around 3 a.m. I was typing a larceny report in my car while Ozark played in the background. It was the scene where Wendy's lover gets thrown off a building and goes splat in front of Marty. Crazy scene. It was a mid-80s summer night amongst a full moon. By that time, everything was calm. The night shift was shorthanded, so my typical beat partner wasn't working. Dispatch requested me for a welfare check. Welfare checks are usually harmless, although it is when you find the most dead bodies. Welfare checks are what they sound like, checking the welfare of a person and ensuring they're okay. The reporting party is usually a family member who couldn't get a hold of the person. I received this information and began driving. I was tasked with checking the welfare of an elderly woman who lived alone on the outskirts of town, barely within city limits. Her granddaughter lived a few states away and hadn't heard from her. She assumed that her grandma accidentally switched her cell phone to silent, as she often did. Dispatch usually sends two officers, but every now and again they'll give an officer an option to take the call alone. Because of staffing levels and the nature of the call, I decided to handle it myself. Worst case scenario, Granny bit the dust and I would call a medical examiner to work an unattended death. I drove a good 15 minutes to the residence, another 100 feet north and it would have been county jurisdiction. Lucky me, right? There were no other houses in the area. It was so quiet that the sound of gravel under my tires was thunderous. Beyond the mailbox was a locked gate and a long dirt driveway. 
I absolutely did not want to walk that driveway alone in the dark without my patrol car. I grabbed my radio to call for another officer, but changed my mind. I would have looked silly asking for help after committing to doing it solo. Plus, it would have been an even longer drive for them. I decided to man up, jump the gate, and make what turned out to be the worst decision in my life. If it wasn't for the moonlight, it would have been so dark that I couldn't see my feet. I was trained to be tactical with my flashlight, only using it in short bursts. It was a good way to be sneaky. I finally reached the house and stood in front of it. It was an old wooden home with two stories. Every window was pinch black, besides one on the second floor, and had a purple curtain with white stripes. I stepped on the unstable wraparound porch and listened carefully. There was nothing but absolute silence. No TV, no creaks, no fans, nothing. Tentatively, I knocked and announced myself. There was no answer and no noise. I knocked even louder and announced again, still nothing. I stepped off the porch to reevaluate the situation. Once far enough, I looked up to the second story. The light was off. Typically, something like that wouldn't creep me out, but the hair on the back of my neck stood straight up. Since the light was off, I couldn't see whether someone was looking back at me. I had a terrifying feeling that they were. I grabbed my flashlight and shined it in through the window. No one was standing there, but the curtain had moved and was still swaying. I went back to the door and knocked even louder, telling her who I was and why I was there. Cynthia, it's Officer Blank with the Blank Police Department. I'm just checking your welfare. I stood there for several minutes in eerie silence. I was ready to hightail it back to the road, but figured I'd wait another minute. I had done my job for the most part. I was there to make sure she wasn't dead. If she wanted to ignore me, fine. I was creeped out, and without a partner, I wasn't going to press the issue. For some reason, before walking away, I decided to try the doorknob. This isn't usual practice, since it could be deemed a violation of the Fourth Amendment. I couldn't enter the home without a warrant, exigent circumstances, or permission. To my surprise and regret, the door opened. Apparently, the heavy wooden door needed its hinges tightened, because it slowly opened all the way until it knocked against the wall. I shined my light inside. It was definitely an old woman's residence. Everything was lavender and tidy. There were creepy portraits of hairless cats in the walls. There were also statues of them. I reached my hand inside to flick on the light, but it didn't activate. At first, I thought the house had no power. There were no sounds of electricity at all, and it was hotter than a sauna with no airflow. Then I remembered the light upstairs. The whole situation was odd and unsettling. I decided to dial my supervisor to get his opinion. I was hoping he would tell me to leave, call the reporting person, and explain what I observed. Before I was able to dial, I heard a sound which haunts me every night. A chilling noise that will die with me. You won't believe me and I don't blame you. It was the sound of intense laughter. Not a giggle, but delirious, gut-busting laughter from what sounded like an old lady. I never drew my Glock faster than I did right then. Hello? 
Who's in there? Before I could finish the sentence, it stopped. I'm not too embarrassed to admit that I turned around and bolted for my car, gun in hand. Just as I left the porch, I was stopped in my tracks. Another equally loud and terrifying noise echoed from the house. This time, it was a scream of someone clearly in distress. It sounded like the same voice, but I wasn't sure. Dang it, I thought to myself. Exigent circumstances. I radioed dispatch and told them what I heard. I advised them that I would be clearing the house. Another officer started en route, but I couldn't wait. I wanted to, but there was no way I could explain waiting 15 to 20 minutes to enter the house of an elderly woman in danger. I entered the hot living room and cleared the immediate area. I knew at least one person was upstairs. The narrow staircase led to a pitch black second floor. Before going up, I announced myself again, and again, to no avail. I began walking up the staircase as calmly as I could. I remember imagining a scenario where I'm clearing the bedrooms and Cynthia pops out of a dark corner. I'd have to explain to the reporting person why I shot her grandma in the face. When upstairs, I checked two rooms that were completely empty. No furniture or anything. I then realized that the last bedroom was the same one that had the light. I announced myself and prayed for a response. I didn't get one. So I grabbed the doorknob and twisted. I swung it open and was immediately met with a nauseating odor. It was the worst I'd ever experienced, almost knocking me down. I illuminated the room with my light. In every corner, on every wall, were dead, skinned cats pinned to wooden crosses. Some were rotten, some were fresh. There was dried blood literally everywhere. Fur and detached claws covered the floor. I dry heaved as I cleared the closet. It was empty. I stumbled my way back downstairs where I vomited on the front porch. I ran to the road to wait for my partner. Once he arrived, we called for even more people and my supervisor. We cleared the house again with no signs of Cynthia. Fast forward to the next evening. The reporting person flew in with other family members. They searched the ten or so acres and found an old abandoned car in the brush. They found her grandma there, leaned back in the passenger seat, deceased for what appeared to be several days. Neither detectives nor the medical examiner would determine the cause of death. Detectives interviewed another family member who said Cynthia had severe schizophrenia and dementia. Inside her home in a kitchen drawer, detectives discovered pages and pages of Hebrew writings. The writings translated to devoted allegiances to the devil Tarot, a devil god that many Satanists worship. Her writings claimed that Tarot asked her to sacrifice her beloved cats. Some believe that I heard Cynthia's laughter and scream and that the upstairs light was on. Some don't. Trust me, sometimes I question it myself. For some reason, my body camera never downloaded to the system. It's like the footage never existed, even though I know it was on. No other calls from that night downloaded either. It even baffled my department. I have constant nightmares about Cynthia. In them, she's laughing with the same terrifying laugh. 
She has unusually long fingers and nails that almost scrape the ground when she walks. I never move fast enough to get away from her. I reach for my gun, but it's never there. She always gets me, and then I wake up. I don't know why I'm still a cop. Maybe it's all I know how to do. I only have 12 more years and many, many more therapy sessions before I can retire. I wasn't a supernatural believer before my experience, but I am now. To those aspiring to be police officers, heed my advice. Be a firefighter instead. Tales from the Break Room is a viewer-submitted podcast featuring allegedly true scary stories that happened on the way to, on the way from, or at work. If you want your story to be narrated on the show, send it to us at eeriecast.com submit. As of April 14th, we're paying three cents per word for stories that are approved and make it onto the show. Submission does not guarantee approval or payment. For a limited time only, PayPal only. Tales from the Break Room is an EerieCast network original podcast hosted by Darkness Prevails. You can follow him on Twitter at Dark Prevails, and you can hear thousands more stories read by him on our other show, Unexplained Encounters. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and rate Tales from the Break Room on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also enjoy plenty more horror-themed podcasts at EerieCast.com. <laughs>